0: couldn't help but think as I sat down to prepare for this talk that coming here to talk about open learning is like bringing coals to Newcastle, because, as you know, you guys are actually the leaders in this field, and we have so much to learn from you. So I expected to come here and take notes and not give a talk, but I realized that I didn't have that choice. <laughs> Kathy's very persuasive as well. Uh, So I do want to talk about this kind of broadly construed, but I want to kind of start off with kind of one of the sub-themes here of sustainability and ask, as an approach to sustainability and as an approach to making all this open learning really work, it might pay to step back a moment and think about how do we leverage and build on the kind of learning that always happens, and you can't stop it, the kind of learning that even happens without our thinking about it, without our trying it. Obvious example would be immersive learning in terms of learning a language. Learning a language by a kid is, in fact, not a simple job. It's a very complex system to learn, um, and yet there's very little formal teaching that goes on in that. So let's step back a moment and kind of review a moment kind of learning. And almost everyone in this room has already, I think, rejected in one form or another kind of a Cartesian view of learning that says that I think, therefore I am. Knowledge is a substance. And pedagogy is kind of focused on how do you maximize the transfer. And so the game of transfer comes up fundamentally in the Cartesian framework. But maybe transfer is not the fundamental issue we should be thinking about. And by the way, if you do think about this from a Cartesian point of view, obviously, you have this kind of delivery model And pedagogical strategies really has to do with building an impedance match, if you wish, between the deliverer and the head, so to speak. Uh, And it does lead to the academy to kind of look at basically disciplines as beautifully cultivated strict rows of knowledge and disciplines and so on and so forth, which kind of just naturally falls out of this Cartesian point of view. And the view that many of us here and that I kind of grew up under was this kind of social view of learning, where we replace I think, therefore, I am to an idea that actually is more than just poetic. We participate, therefore, we are. And you're going to see participation comes through everything I'm going to be talking about today. But that notion of we participate, therefore, we are sounds so simple. And yet I want to point out that its basis is actually object relation theory in psychoanalysis that in fact we come into being through object relations to other. And that otherness is a critical part of creating our own identity and so on and so forth. So there's something very fundamental going on here. But I want to argue in this kind of social point of view is that understanding, not knowledge, but understanding is socially constructed in one form or another. Um, And in fact, from that point of view, learning is a lot messier. This cartoon kind of captures it. We learn in and from our interaction with others and the world. And in fact, at the very end, or at, over a coffee, we can even talk about how do you have conversation with the world. An idea that Donald Schön actually brought to the fore in a very, very subtle way in terms of how do you listen to the backtalk of a situation. Being a material designer, material science designer, it's a curious thing of how do you listen to the back talk of this new kind of molecular material you may be trying to build. There is a conversation going on, not between people, but between you and material in very interesting ways. And in fact, talking about natural things that happen, one of the few deeply robust results in most educational theory today is that in fact the best indicator of success in college, has to do with whether or not you know how to form, join, participate in study groups, bar none. That result has been replicated time and time again in one form or another. And that sense of the study group is actually where real learning happens, in terms of how do you take what you've been given as information or knowledge, how do you internalize it in your own particular frame. And the curious thing is that these notions of study groups as many people here at the OU have deeply been looking at for a long time, these ideas of study groups work in a distributed way just as well as face-to-face. And in fact, sometimes they can work with very simple technology, having to do with instant messaging, sometimes much more complex technology, but the fact is that the power of these study groups basically really work in a distributed form. And in fact, the social life of learning is real, this is a shot I took when I was giving a talk at MIT campus. Everyone, everywhere on that campus, basically you look around, and there are kids building groups, talking about things in one way or another. And of course, there's no particular reason if we move from kind of the study groups and the social life on campus. They also exist in Second Life. And there's been a lot of work going on here and other people attending this conference in terms of Second Life. And how might you actually start to build new types of distributed study groups in Second Life? So I'm not arguing that Second Life is a pedagogical environment. I'm arguing that one of the simplest uses of Second Life is how do you build study groups, distributed study groups? No big deal. Kind of interesting things can happen here. And coupled to that notion of study groups, is the notion, of course, of social networks. And I was really struck about a, half a year ago. I was with John King, <coughs> Vice Provost, University of Michigan. And he asked me a leading question. He said, John, how many people do you think we educate? And I thought about it. I said, you know, the last time I checked, there was about 40,000 students at, going on at, at Michigan. So I said, around 40,000. He said, no, John, a quarter of a million. I said, what are you talking about, a quarter of a million? you don't have a quarter million students on this campus, and you don't have really distance learning going on very much at the University of Michigan. He said, no, no, here's what happens. Any student that comes as a freshman to University of Michigan actually has already built a robust social network of his or her friends, some back in the villages they came from, some going to other colleges and so on and so forth. And that particular social network is also turning out to be a new kind of a study group is a new kind of a bull session. And so people are actually swapping stories between (coughs) campuses and so on and so forth. So in some sense, the productivity of what's going on, for example, on campus, starts to get incredibly magnified by different types of social networks that kind of string out. And I thought that was kind of a fairly interesting thing. And you're really beginning to see all kinds of social networks coming online. But how many have really been dedicated to really expanding this particular notion? Or, you might also ask, do they have to be dedicated? Is it also a natural byproduct of things that are happening once you understand the social view of learning? And, of course, if you really want to think about effectiveness, we all kind of know in our gut that the best way to learn something is to teach something. And, in fact, study groups, of course, do that, But are there ways to turn life on campus into something that really does amplify kids, students, as teachers, as well as learners? Because if you could really do that, you might dramatically change the effectiveness of what goes on on campuses. So kind of the summary of those kind of cartoons is a very simple theme that we're going to play out in quite different ways as we go forward. And that is, if you take this social (coughs) learning point of view, that understanding is socially constructed, again, I want to focus on the fact that I'm talking about understanding socially constructed, not knowledge. This is not a postmodern claim. Knowledge can be very grounded. We're just saying that the way you come, each of us individually, to understand it is often through conversation and working with others. It does suggest that we step back and take a very serious look at how might we actually support learning through various forms of participatory architectures. And you saw that kind of as a thread a little bit in our OER report for, for the Hewlett or for Kathy. The example that has driven me for so long is walking inside an architectural studio. And I spent 20, probably 25 years of my life in architectural studios, perhaps because my wife is an architect and I met her in one of these studios uh, at MIT. Um, And there are several things that really hit you when you look at these types of studios as atelier forms of learning. What hits you, first of all, is that in a studio, all work in progress is always rendered public. There's no way of hiding what you're doing. What you do is out there. Even in CAD-CAM systems, you have printouts all over your, your workspace. What this means is that basically, as one student designer struggles with something, the students all around them are also participating in kind of a legitimate peripheral participation way with the struggles that that student is going through. So they are kind of participating from the periphery in the thinking processes of the student. Which means when the crit time comes and the master comes in to critique this person's project, everybody else, of course, also hears that critique. But in hearing that critique, they have a very nuanced and textured understanding of the thinking processes that went on in producing that product that is being critiqued. So they have a very rich framework for interpreting what the master is saying even though they didn't do it. So you actually have a fairly interesting productivity factor here because you may have 15 or 20 students all kind of listening to the crit on one student and picking up all kinds of things from that one crit. So this curious kind of learning is going on simply from the fact that work in progress is made public. Now think about it a moment. In the academy, we are just the opposite. If I'm sitting next to a colleague and I come from physics and math, you know, like, I think I'm a hero if I've been able to actually hide what I'm doing. And so on Monday morning, you pick up nature, and there is my article. It's a total surprise to the person who's in the office next to mine. We keep things pretty much to ourselves. Architects do just the opposite. They render everything in public professional architects as well as students. But the second aspect of this notion is that learning is actually a question of enculturating into a practice. They aren't learning the knowledge of architecture. They're actually enculturating into a practice to become an architect. In fact, I think if you look at this, you look at a tremendous amount of the way we've structured education in the past, is you first spend a lot of time learning about something. And then after you learn about something enough, sometimes you're allowed to start to actually put that knowledge into honest-to-God research practice to learn what does it mean to be something. In fact, I had gone through four years of undergraduate, two years of graduate school in theoretical mathematics. I was taking a course from Helmos, Paul Helmos, a great research mathematician, And for the first time ever, he got stuck. And when he got stuck, he turned and he worked through how he was thinking about this problem. And those of us in that class was the first time we ever began to understand what did it mean to be a research mathematician. I knew a hell of a lot about mathematics. And I could do proofs and all this kind of thing, but I had no idea what it meant to be. What are the sensibilities? What are the ways of looking at the world that to be a research mathematician entails? So most of our education has spent a great deal of time up here. And then if you're really lucky and can put up with it long enough, you start to learn what it means to be. And, of course, the spirit of I think what we can now do with technology and this kind of open learning uh, movement is to really look at can we turn this whole thing around? can we actually look at kind of learning to be first? And then when you get stuck at doing something that you're passionately engaged with, like these architects would do, they would have to then go back and figure out, well, what is the structural calculation for this beam of this building I'm building, and so on and so forth. Then, through productive inquiry, they start to learn about. So there's a sense of how do you kind of start learning about under productive inquiry from things you're doing learning to be. And so it's a sense of maybe there's a chance to invert this or at least to tighten the loop between these two issues. Let's look at a very simple example. I think you have some here. Here's a case at MIT called the Teal Project, 8.02 E&M course. And this course is actually a brilliant course. This course is used to basically convince you you don't want to be a physicist. <laughs> basically, they can start out with multiple hundred, I think, to about 800. And by the time this course is over, it can get down to around 200. It's very effective filter. And if you actually think about E&M, you learn a lot about field equations. And of course, field equations defy causal understanding by mere mortals. Um, <laughs> and that is, of course, the way it is taught. <laughs> So it's very effective at convincing you that maybe you should go into mechanical engineering or the arts or something else. Um, But this is a bit tragic because an awful lot of these kids are, in fact, capable of doing fantastically good technical work. So this was an experiment borrowed from RPI originally, North Carolina State University, the Scale-Up Project as well. This is called the Teal Project, where they decided to go back to that notion of an atelier, form of learning, and say what happens if you actually break up this course into kind of a studio-based learning where you take these round tables, you have nine kids per table, and basically in this kind of a framework what happens is the prof maybe talks for 10 or 15 minutes then sets kids to work on problems, walks around to these, uh, these tables, acts as a kind of a mentor rather than a teacher and so on and so forth. Now, did this course work very well? What's this story? Well, we don't have to go too deeply into it, but let me just say a couple things. One thing became very clear is in this kind of a scheme, sage on a stage does not work. So, in fact, they had to do a major retraining of the professors in order to make this actually work. Because all the practices of classical teaching of this EM course, in this kind of a framework, of course, were a pathetic failure. Something else turned out to be very critical. They had to stop marking on a curve. Because they want these kids to learn from each other. They want these kids to teach each other. And if you're going to mark on a curve, what's the incentive of helping somebody else learn something around one of these tables? And so in one of their kind of yearly experiments, where the results were extremely suboptimal. It turned out that, basically, they were marking on a curve. The next year, they said, step back and it's not marking a curve and whammo a complete new social experience started to emerge around these tables but let's go on because if you take this learning to be and if you want to look at new ways that kind of mentorship actually can start to happen because learning to be without any kind of teaching or mentoring is not all that likely to be that effective question is, are there brand new ways to bring kind of mentors into the game that's a win-win situation for both the students and the mentors? Here's an example, and I bet many of you kind of know this. This is a Folks Telescope project. This was actually started in England uh, about, I don't know, about 10 years ago, 5, 10 years ago. Um, This telescope itself actually happens to be positioned in Maui. There's a second telescope in the Southern Hemisphere in Australia, These telescopes are completely remotely controlled. And students from all over England can sign up to use these telescopes. It is open in the sense that any experiments you do on these telescopes and any analysis you do has to be put up on the web. But there's also a folks Telescope Academy. And in this academy, what happens is basically professional astronomers start interacting with students, running experiments, helping them to interpret the data. Why? Because every once in a while, there's some very interesting results that get found by students in this process. And so you begin to find kind of a new interaction between the students and the professionals. So the professional does not think he or she is taking time off from their work to be a mentor, but it's simply a process very much like in graduate school education. But this is starting at the high school level. And in fact, I could talk all day on amateur astronomy and what's happened in terms of how the amateurs, amateur, by the way, coming from Latin amateur, meaning things I do for love. We have a very distorted notion of what amateur means, but amateur are things that you're passionately engaged with. These amateurs are basically watching the heavens on a 724 basis. Because our amateurs network together all around the world. So professional <coughs> astronomers know if they harness this, the sky is being watched whenever it's dark, everywhere it is dark, all the time. And there have been some very astounding, some very fundamental breakthroughs in both astronomy and theoretical physics that have come <coughs> from amateurs finding things, interacting with the professionals to validate it and so on and so forth. So it's a kind of interaction that I find fairly interesting. The previous example was, again, the notion of enculturating into a practice, because what was really happening with those students is they were, through the interaction with professional astronomers, beginning to learn a little bit more about the practice of professional astronomy, if you wish. Here is another small insight into another practice. This is a practice of scholarship in the classics. This is a website created at Brown University around the Decameron novel, written about life outside of Florence in the Black Plague. This has been studied tremendously uh, because it's a very important piece of Italian literature. And what this web portal has done is it has basically built what you might call a spike. It has become the central repository for scholarship around the world in this one particular, very narrow topic of the Decameron novel. What happens in this is that basically now scholars from around the world can contribute things to it, they can argue things out. Students, graduate students usually, are allowed to put pieces up and they are likewise subject to the same type of critique that the professional um, scholars are open to. So what's beginning to happen here is this is not a particularly great, I mean, it is great, but it's, not, its purpose is not content, from my point of view. Its purpose is to give a little bit of a window into the practices of what does scholarship mean in this particular field. Because basically the practices of scholarship in fields, the different fields is really quite different. For example, as you know, the practices of an engineer versus the practices of a mathematician almost have no overlap. They can't talk because basically the sense of elegance that a mathematician has is not the same sense of elegance that an engineer has. That's one of the reasons why cross-discipline research is so complicated. So what we really saying is we're trying to kind of reify and open up the practices of scholarships of various different fields that students can then enculturate into in the process of becoming rather than just learning about. So let's take a break. Let's take a jump. And let's ask, in today's digital world, call them born digital, call them the mobile generation, whatever you wish, do we understand them? And likewise, which I think is critical for us in learning, is do we understand what creates meaning for them? Because if you don't understand what creates meaning, it's going to have a very hard time getting them that much engaged in either learning to be or learning about. So we can ask that question. But by the way, we can also ask, what creates meaning for us ancients? It'd be surprising that not that much time is really spent thinking about what creates meaning for us, the old folks, and us, the young folks. I want to argue that the topic we don't talk much about is the topic of tinkering. And what's the role of tinkering? And you can see how it might relate a little bit to that learning to be, that part down here. Tinkering What do you learn from tinkering? Well, first of all, let's step back and recognize that by and large, most of us in this room, especially the guys in this room, got our original kind of um, introduction to technical topics probably by tinkering. 14, 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old folks, we worked on cars, motorcycles, lawnmower engines, We worked with ham radios, radios, amplifiers, all this kind of stuff. And we would play with these things. We'd take them apart. We'd tinker with them. Did we understand partial differential equations? No. But somehow we were getting something. Well, a curious thing happened. Around 1980, we can argue the time, tinkering stopped. It dropped out of a good share of the baby boomers generation. Why? Because basically most of the devices we deal with today are cognitively impenetrable. That is to say I can't open my watch anymore and make sense out of it. I can't open my car anymore and make sense out of it. And by the way, there are a couple of us that do know how to make sense out of it and that's now a felony. (laughs) You're not allowed to change the software Driving your engine, by the way, you can add about 30% horsepower to a car if you can actually change the timing in that ship. But it does some other things that the state, at least California, um, throws you in jail for. Um, (laughs) I won't go down that story, but (laughs) I know a lot about that. Um, So what started to happen, though, is around 1995, tinkering came back but it came back in a brand new way. It came back in the form of open source. It came back in the form of gaming. I mean, you really look at how kids play games. they play games? Not really. What do they do? Is they traffic in the knowledge economy around the edge of the games? They mash up the tools. They build very complex dashboards. They mod the games themselves. You know, they don't just take that game as a given. They're actually continually tinkering with that game. Now let's go into media, look at the remix game. What do you do with music? What do you do with media? And all of a sudden, tinkering has come back in, in a very major way. In fact, there is an interesting difference about tinkering today. Tinkering today is pretty gender neutral. Thirty years ago, tinkering was slightly gender biased toward guys, although gals had their own forms of tinkering. They were not maybe as articulated... Um, as as kind of working on machines and so on and so forth. But I want to suggest that tinkering set the foundation for something that we all say so glibly, but most of us don't understand at all, and that is tacit understanding. And what I want to recommend, and I now know in the uh, English audiences this is not as true as the American audiences, but if you look at um, Michael um, Polanyi's book called Tacit. That is a book that is quoted by almost every educator I know and has a property that almost no educator until I came to London <laughs> see Diana <laughs> uh, to say that everybody who quotes that book actually has never read the book. And in fact, the lines they quote actually is the beginning of the book nothing to do with the end of the book. But in that book, Polanyi starts to talk about how do you attend from rather than just attend to. And his notion of attending from has to do with subconscious processes that are not cognitively penetrable, but actually set up the way that you see the world in ways you're not even aware that's really happening. It has to do with an attendance or an attunement but it has to do with I attend from something inside me. I'm going to claim that that comes primarily from tinkering. And that's a very strong cognitive platform. You want to call it cognitive, is it dangerously? Very strong platform from which our understandings actually start to emerge. And what I find so interesting is that tinkering now has been brought to the surface in so many powerful ways through the net. For example, that telescope, you're tinkering with that telescope. Electron microscopes, the kids now use on biology courses, they're tinkering with those things. So we can now get access to amazing instrumentation, not sitting in our own classrooms, or our own labs, but remotely controlled. So the sense of tinkering, I think, has just been blown sky high. I think it actually turns out to be a very important basis that almost none of us think very much about. But let's go back to the board, digital. Look at the kinds of things that tinkering involves. Obviously, open source, I'll come back to that in a moment, YouTube, Second Life, Game Modding, Civilization Four, how do you start tinkering with that? Think about what these Lego kits, uh, amateur anime, which turns out to be, by the way, a very major movement in London, Again, all happening under the radar scheme. Um, your Truman Show, a new form of tinkering, telling your own story in some bizarre way in that show. Um, but these are all examples of tinkering that are now made possible in the digital world. So I just simply want to argue that what we really see here is now a wonderful smearing of the boundary. In the old world, we really had basically the production of stuff completely separated from the consumption of stuff. In today's, for example, remix world, basically I produce, other people consume it, they mod it, I consume what they just produced, and so on and so forth. So you get a very interesting cycle starting to happen. But why bring it out? I bring it out because something else we're beginning to kind of find out there, and that is a new sense for these kids of how do they create meaning. They're creating meaning by looking at what they produce and share and other people build on. So the culture of sharing that is so fundamental to the open education resource movement, we begin to see as the platform for the construction of identity. And if you can really think about how to facilitate this whole turning so that I begin to be seen as a contributor that other people pick up and build on. And I get acknowledged through that process of other people building on. So this has to do with acknowledgement. Again, a very important psychoanalytic concept as well. And then the sense of the spiral that starts to develop. Let's look at one of the most simple examples of this. Look at open source. In a curious way, you can think of the open source as a participatory learning platform as really a form of distributed situated learning. Notice that if you want to join a particular open source community, such as Linux, Apache, JBoss, so on and so forth, what you have to do is you have to start to inculturate into that community, because you've got to be able to pick up their sensibilities, their practices, and so on and so forth. So, for example, a huge difference between most of the open source movements and the way that some of us, starting with myself, actually learned how to program is that basically the open source movement because they want to drive that cycle I showed you a moment ago, start out with saying, you have to write code that is meant to be read. Now, that seems obvious to a lot of youngsters today. But some of us in this room, starting with myself, knew that if we could write code that no one else could figure out, and it worked, we were macho, we were the heroes of the day. You could not read the code that I wrote, and I was damn proud of that. And I was not unique. (laughs) That was the mantra. Today, in the open source movement, I'd be killed instantly. And of course, if you write code to be read by others, that becomes the basis of a learning platform. And in fact, that makes others possible to come in and tinker with it, make very small adjustments, make it slightly better. And if you actually look at how do you move from the periphery of one of these communities into the center, you start doing stuff on the periphery, very menial tasks, fix up device drivers, sometimes write a new device driver, and so on and so forth. And eventually, if you become good enough and accepted by the community, you're allowed to move more and more into the code, into the center code, maybe even eventually into the kernel code of the open source. And of course, what really matters here is social capital matters. Going back to this construction of identity, construction of meaning. Because if I'm doing things that other people are using and other people acknowledge me for it, I feel good about it, but I build social capital. And so if you look at what's so critical in this kind of open source movement, the code is open, the system is open, If I need to, I am allowed to probe arbitrarily deep into that system to understand some type of performance property, even into the kernel. can't change the kernel, but I can look at it. And basically, there's amazing forms and community discussion groups around this. Discussions around concrete problems that are coming up in that community trying to patch this code, fix the performance, and so on and so forth. These are not open-ended discussions. These are very grounded discussions on real problems let us go on. Think about remix. This is actually what I picked up um, from some kids in the underground, so to speak, in London. What's really going on in terms of the tinkering and the play of imagination in these fan design groups, for example, in amateur anime? What's really going on is a new kind of reading. What these kids are doing is they watch the professional anime, which is usually a story about something. And then they start filling in the back story to the front story. And they build their own anime, explaining why this thing that you just saw actually had to happen that way. So they're writing stories about the back stories to the fore story. That's very close to a new form of close reading that we would die to get our kids to be able to do. They're engaging in a very deep form of close reading in terms of constructing in plays of imagination what could have been the cause of this particular event that the anime itself just portrayed. So what are we seeing here? We're creating meaning by remixing my imagination with the author's imagination. And we're beginning to see a very serious form of the play of imagination in this particular type of setup. You often see this, by the way, in YouTube, although you see a lot of other things in YouTube, too. So, of course, it's not surprising. What we've been looking at here is various forms of, kind of what you might call the new Web 2.0 movement. And you might think about the Web 2.0 movement as a new, again, a new kind of participatory medium. Or is it a new form of participatory media? Or what is the difference? We may want to ponder that a moment. But this new form of media, think what it means for students, teachers, producers, consumers, parents, and so on. Why do I bring this up this way? Because everyone in this room, starting with Kathy, we can step back and we can say, what do we really now have at our fingertips. We have the phenomenal resources of OpenLearn, learning space here, the phenomenal resources coming up in all the worldwide movements of open education resources. That telescope was a trivial little example of all kinds of things that are happening in eScience. That The Cameron Web is a simple example of many, many, many hundreds of, of various focused portals that are coming up in the humanities. And these are not just content. These are content, these are tools, these are activities, these are professionals using those portals. A big distinction. This is going way beyond content. This is deeply engaged with activity. Um, And of course, we then have kind of the thinking of Web 2.0. And what it suggests is maybe the time has now come to how might you start to tie all the content, all the tools, and some of the activities together to create a term that Dan Atkins and I um, originally called Open Participatory Learning Infrastructure, a term that freaked out a bunch of our colleagues in America. (laughs) So we're going to use a simple, more friendly term, ecosystem. (laughs) Um, And the catch here is tying this all together, content, tools, activities, but with these activities, etc., you now have a chance of looking at how do you close the loop. How do you actually do this in a way that this ecosystem is not only cross-pollinating with itself, but this ecosystem is getting better and better and better with use? That, by the way, is the spirit of Web 2.0. How do you close these loops so that I can see how these things are being used, how they're being misused, what are unusual ways to use these things, and so on and so forth. And I think this afternoon, Toro, when do you speak? Okay, today or tomorrow? Today. today uh, um, you know, you will see, for example, in his Keep toolkit system, kind of one of the ways to, in interesting, powerful ways, to close the loop. And I think one of the interesting research topics we have before us are what are the various ways to close the loop? So not only the materials, activities, content gets better, but also maybe our own theory of learning gets better. Because if you look at, for example, a few of his I've looked at in open that is now being repurposed around the world. All kinds of different cultural communities are using this. What's the chance to start to learn how particular material is getting misunderstood? What does that tell us about cognition? What does that tell us about culture? And so on and so forth. So we may have an incredible platform for starting to kind of advance our own sense of what's really going on here. So I want to suggest we're now almost at a perfect storm in terms of creating a new kind of ecosystem for intertwining the knowledge creation, the learning, and the mentoring. And I I kind of focus on knowledge creation because every example I gave was not mentoring in the abstract. It was mentoring in terms of real scientists, real scholars, doing real work that you could become legitimate peripheral participants to. This is kind of saying this is naturally happening, what does it mean to kind of leverage that? And, in fact, um, Dan and I have talked about a challenge. It's important when he says it because he is from NSF, a challenge to uh, National Science Foundation saying every major scientific grant, what would it mean if NSF said you must spend 10% of the money opening this up to students to be able to use, to be able to apprenticeship in, and so on and so forth because we're paying for this stuff anyway. And it's very interesting to say, how do we open these systems a little bit more so that you can become a participant if you have the passion to do that and see if you could actually become a contributor in that kind of search. So I want to suggest that maybe there's even a more fundamental movement at stake here. If you want to look at the last few hundred years, you might see that our history is one from moving from scarcity to moving to abundance. Back originally when scarcity was very hard to find the products that you wanted, we focused on building a manufacturing economy. And that manufacturing economy took on momentum, flourished, and all of a sudden it actually produced more things than we needed. (laughs) And that was the beginning of the consumer economy, where Madison Avenue was born, advertising was born, and so on and so forth. Marketing was born. And so this was the beginning of the, of the uh, society of abundance. I'm going to call it the consumer society. I'm suggesting now, with the kind of abundance we really see happening in this digital world, we're moving into a new kind of economy, a creator economy. We're beginning to now see the rise of a new kind of culture, a culture of co-creation, and cultural participation. And of course, this fits perfectly into the thinking that goes on in OpenLearn. It's almost like two sides of the same coin. But in this kind of sense of abundance, in terms of this kind of creator economy, are we now entering a new kind of a world, a world that says maybe there's an infinite number of niche communities out there that are these kind of co-creator niches. And is this not the beginning of the long tail, which I'll say about in a moment, and from there, maybe we're actually entering a world which learning on demand by joining these infinite variety of niche communities is now possible. Let's think about the abundance we have. We already talked about all the things in open courseware, starting with you guys, OCW, connections, the story goes on and on and on. We already talked about simulations in terms of the climate simulation models, in terms of the NSF type of operation. We talked about remote instrumentations. We talked about scholarly websites. Now we have also the ability to do digital storytelling and posting them through YouTube, through iMovie, remixing music. What can you do with a garage band? I mean, this is getting to be a pretty impressive list. It does remind me of the origins of the long tail. And the long tail here maybe first was brought to us by Chris Anderson in terms of looking at a place like Amazon. What happens if you have a store that is not limited to shelf space? Up until very recently, all stores that you could buy things at had a limited shelf space. And they were driven by the Pareto 80-20 distribution, They really said that basically 80% of your revenue was being made by 20% of the books, and your job was to make sure you had those 20% of the books plus a little bit more, um, and you didn't worry about anything beyond that. So you kind of stopped what you stored. In most bookstores, like around 30,000 volumes. Um, Amazon came along, and Amazon through their interesting fulfillment centers, warehouses, can afford to hold a book for one year before it's being sold and still make money on it. No normal store could begin to do that. And so Amazon said, well, you know, maybe there's a lot more action down here in the long tail than we ever realized. And in fact, in today's world, Amazon makes more than half of its money in this long tail that never was being served before in terms of these very small niche communities. Why do I bring this up? I want to argue that there's a long tail in both education and in learning. Consider it in education. Anyone who actually does the books at a university Delmo knows that 80% of the revenue comes from 20% of the courses. And a huge percentage of the cost of a university is serving the very rare courses that are taught once every other year, so on and so forth. So education, the economics of education is in fact driven by the long tail. And in fact, if you look at the open U, you're capable of being a little bit more like Amazon in finding much cheaper ways to drive down that tail. But now let's flip it. Let's think about learning. What I'm going to assert is that for any interest that any kid has today, there already exists a niche community of practice living on the web in the long tail. All you have to do is find it. All you have to do is learn how to join it. Think of what those resources are really like. And think how those resources tie into the kinds of things you're doing here in OpenLearn. What this really suggests, in terms of learning to be, is I can find that one thing that I'm most passionate about. I can join that. When I get stuck, then I have to engage in productive inquiry and hopefully drive myself up to look at other things here. In fact, in a very interesting way, I first discovered... OER, actually I don't know if you know this, through um, CMU and MIT that I had to give a public lecture for some bizarre reason on neutrinos (laughs) Um, and uh, as a part of something else in nuclear reactors. I had to refresh my memory and did I go to Wikipedia? Well, yes. But what I did is I actually went to OpenCourseWare and I pulled up sites from both CMU and MIT and kind of did a quick study to refresh my memory and to update my understanding of this particular arcane field uh, in order to be able to move ahead. In terms of real communities of practice, not just content, there are all kinds of things happening down here. And I want to argue that part of our game is how to figure out how to tap these things, couple them to kind of how you, when you get stuck, engage in productive inquiry, and how some of the content being done up here and kind of the the communities of practice down here start to be tied together. So I'm suggesting that we don't quite understand, but there's an opportunity for some very interesting loops where if you wanted to, you could start down here and then move up to core, or you could start up here in the core curriculum and move down to here. Depending on how you want to do that, the tools engaged... To cause that migration, those spirals are going to be different, and we ought to think about them. Now let me end with three slides. The bigger picture. The simple one, what we really see so much the spirit of nearly every example I've given, is how do you actually do active blending, not just tapping resources, between learning? and researching. Because researching is happening. It's usually separated from learning. How do you start to combine those in exactly the properties of the long tail or however you want to look at it? What's the opportunity there? And in that opportunity, you get the professionals, the scholars, starting to be able to be naturally occurring mentors with the students wanting to join in on that kind of work. And now you don't have to be limited to just the things going on in your own campus. Because in this particular world, like I showed you, the Decameron Web or the Folks Telescope here in the UK, basically anyone around the world can join. So that opens up the tapestry unbelievably in terms of finding a few kids, really talented, passionately engaged, that actually could contribute to the doing of research, science, scholarship. So that's Point one. So it's a whole question of thinking about researching, moving to researching, so to speak. Point two has a substantially more radical point of view. And it says, you know, we really are operating in a brand new world. And the world we're operating in, stability is not our luxury. In fact, the world is changing so fast that some of the data we were looking at uh, yesterday and some of the discussion we were having yesterday, you know, expect your students today to go through 10 or 15 career transitions before they finish. So you've got to think about how do you train somebody not for a career any longer, but for a career trajectory. How do you think about that difference? But let's step back. Because if you look at the media world, if you look at the manufacturing world, in fact, if you look at any of the commercial worlds, we've gone through a very interesting transformation. Back when the world was stable, you could predict what customers wanted. You built warehouses. You built manufacturing sites. You could build warehouses. that You could build stocks of knowledge, stocks of assets, and then you deploy those when customers want them. That was basically the world of supply push. That was the fundamental mechanism under the manufacturing economy in a stable world. And of course, as the world changed, we moved to lean manufacturing, what you might call demand pull. So basically, you would only take those parts when you needed them. And that, by the way, would work all the way through almost an infinitely long supply chain So basically, as I sign on the web and I order this particular Dell computer, within five minutes, orders are going out literally around the world to schedule the distributions between second-tier, first-tier suppliers into central assemblers and so on and so forth. We moved to a world of dramatic demand pool. But notice, in learning, in education, we have not made that transition. Basically, our intent, our views of schooling are still based on a stable world where we build up stocks of knowledge in kids using our authority to tell kids, at some point, you're going to need this stuff. You may not get it now, but trust us. On the other hand, if the world is changing so fast, how viable is that? So I want to suggest that just like the media world, just like basically any part of the manufacturing world, we need to think about how do you move from a point of view of stocks to a point of view of flows, a demand-pull-type system, which is really based much more on a kind of a participatory, productive inquiry-type model. This is a world heavily based on sit- situation, situational tacit knowledge because, by the way, as the world changes, It is your dispositions. It is your abilities to have gut intuitions that enable you to feel comfortable in picking up something new. So what makes you feel comfortable willing to pick up something new? It's the depth of the space plus your ability to be confident that you can basically find whatever you need in terms of facts, concepts, and tools out there already. So I want to suggest that this transformation we're talking about may be summarized as learning 2.0 or learning 1.0 with building stocks of knowledge assets to be later deployed under an authority-based model versus a demand pull system and Diana, this is quite a different meaning of demand than we were using yesterday Um, in terms of something that really does work for a rapidly changing world. Now obviously you're going to want some balance on this but think about that. And kind of the final slide if you take this remix, if you take this co creation seriously, think about what happens in a world where creation becomes an act of recreation. Today's recreational world is basically a passive world. But the kids being born digital, in terms of the remix, in terms of the participatory media we're talking about, or in fact, anybody being educated in the kind of the framework I'm talking about, basically has suddenly moved, I think, from thinking about recreation as something that happens to me rather than as something that I participate in in terms of recreation. And if that transformation of recreation, moving to recreation, from passive to active, could be brought about. I think we're well on the way to creating a culture of learning culture of learning, a culture that thrives on participatory lifelong learning, and perhaps that is the ultimate, ultimate sustainable model. Are we on the verge of actually taking all the infrastructures, all the ideas that you folks have been pioneering, tying them together in very powerful ways with potentially a slightly different theory about how do you move from a stocks versus to a flow and the flow having to do with how do you participate in the actions every example I gave you had students participating authentically in action and thereby beginning to learn a little bit about what does it mean to be in that particular discipline or that particular practice we're talking about could we actually pull this off (laughs) because if we could create a culture of learning that has these properties. That is the ultimate competitive edge because as the world changes we're completely fluent and comfortable in living that change out. We don't have to have the inertia that most economies have. So there's a sense that if we could get comfortable in the 21st century of this world of change, which really is the essence of kind of continuous learning. And I say this kind of in a way that says, you know, the term continuous learning, lifelong learning, is a term we've thrown around so loosely for so many decades. But if you begin to see this kind of epistemological basis what we're talking about, might there actually be, for the first time ever, a chance to pull that off? And if that's going to be pulled off, it's going to be based a lot on the kinds of things you're doing here. So with that, thank you.